0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome John Rin from the University of Colorado Colorado on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you got your PhD from Yale, Yale University. In 2010, you then became assistant professor at Harvard University, where you became associate professor in 2012. In 2017, you then moved to the University of Colorado and became the Leslie Orgel Professor of RNA Science, and you are still there today. A question I would like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in, bi- in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: Yeah, that's a uh, it's a great question, and it's one of the things I love about your podcast is hearing everybody's path and and all the differences therein. But um, I guess mine's a very kind of long, twisted uh, path to science. Um, I didn't start out uh, as a very good student. I guess I was kind of in the vocational track in high school, and I think I had a GPA of about one point seven. And so, school chemistry, biology were foreign. Things to me. I didn't really even know what they were, and suffered a few injuries and decided to go to college um, after attending community college for a little while. And I fell in love with chemistry um, because it was something you could practice, and things started to come together in my imagination, or I could sort of see the process of chemistry working. Um, and and sort of just the root memorization. I'm not the smartest bulb in the bunch, but I can work really hard and um, learn things over and over again. Um, and that I fell in love with the fact that you can work hard and learn something um, compared to a lot of other disciplines, and fell in love with it, and the rest just took off. <laughs>
1: If you want to talk about your science, uh, this uh, centers around the characterization of uh, long-long coding RNAs, their function and their effect on chromatin and gene regulation. Um, You were amongst the first people to describe and characterize long-long coding RNAs that are associated with chromatin, and this work was published in Nature in 2009. Um, Could you maybe take us back to those times? Uh, What was the objective behind uh, the study, and what did you find?
2: Yeah, actually, if we, we go back to the beginning, it was in around 1999, I was a grad student, and I was certain I was going to be a crystallographer. I was really into pictures of RNA. Um, so I kind of always had an affinity for RNA. And I we had to do an off-rotation um, outside of uh, biophysics. And I did that with Michael Snyder, uh, who was in molecular and cellular biology at the time at Yale. And the human genome was all the news. You know, how many genes do humans have? And people would get in these heated debates. Um, over this with no data. And they were just kind of philosophically debating it. And during my rotation with Mike Snyder, he said, We're going to find how many genes there are in the human genome. Are you interested in this? And it, obviously, that's a very orthogonal type of research from crystallography. And, um but it turned out microarrays were dots with spots. And so was crystallography. You just measure the intensity of dots and different, you know, mathematical models for them. Um, and so I found that it was actually very basic crystallography was the approach they were using to find new genes in the genome. And then I sort of bailed on my crystallography, uh, went to his lab, and lo and behold, we found that there was tons of RNA coming out of the genome. And that's all we really knew circa, you know, 2004-ish, three. And then the question was, well, what is it all just noise? You know, is it just a a bunch of noise and so i wanted to focus my postdoc on that and say well if we look at important regions of the human genome like the hawks regions uh, that are important for body development and um, many critical developmental processes if there's long non-coding rna's there then maybe they're important Um, and moreover if they had pattern in their expression would be one step closer to thinking they're a reasonable new type of gene Um, and that turned out to be the case. And we found one that had interacted with an epigenetic complex and for better, or for worse, that's kind of what, what everybody took home from this was, uh, exists. The RNA that is involved in X inactivation had long been known to be able to silence an entire chromosome, but nobody really knew the mechanism or the epigenetic interplay. And I think our work just showed that an RNA can influence these epigenetic processes. And then it all sort of took off in the field of X activation, and made the connections to polycomb and um, other complexes uh, using the RNA. Um, and then 2009 we started at the Broad Institute and collaborating with Eric Lander and Mitch Gutman and Aviv Regev. Uh, we wanted to tackle this on a much bigger scale. And it's really was the start of what's become, I think, a pattern and why I kind of, moved to Boulder in the end, um, was let's find the really good ones now. So we see that there's potential for these to be new regulatory elements. How do we get more and more stringent on finding out important ones? And the first step was to use a combination of chip seek or epigenetic markers that gave us additional information that it was a real gene. Um, so the logic there was if it's a gene, look for a gene and they have promoters and gene bodies. And so we used histone marks to sort of uh, map those out. And that reduced the number, in our, in our opinion, to only a few thousand, um, which was more tacklable um, uh, rather than the whole genome being transcribed, which was kind of prevalent in around 2009. Um, and then the ultimate step, I think, and it took like, I think six years. And basically, we went broke or all in on this project was making mouse models So the reasoning there was it was kind of the way to do science is to ask a question, no matter what the answer is, it'll be publishable. (laughs) (laughs) And so we decided to make 20 knockout mouse models. And if none of them had a phenotype, probably be a cell paper saying, Hey, there's nothing here. Uh, Maybe we should move on. Um, And if there was something, then that would really be the ultimate kind of bar of saying like, Hey, there's an organismal phenotype. If we remove this gene, there's something encoded in there that's important for um, the physiology of a whole organism. And uh, we finished that around 2013 and continued on to go even further and not just knocking out RNAs, but adding them back in to see if they can rescue the phenotype and taking, we sort of ended up at genetics is kind of the math of biology, if you will, that um, you can really get powerful insights into their if a gene is functional through these genetic models, and that's kind of I've gone way past where you were talking about <laughs> two thousand nine, but that's kind of where the, our time in Boston uh, sort of peaked, if you will. Is that we we now had a handful of uh, genes that we have a phenotype in a mouse, and we wanted to pursue how they work instead of just this long. De- over a decade of are these things even worth studying is kind of what we kept asking ourselves
1: so during my research i found that you kept using two different terms for those rnas so it's yeah. like uh, long no coding rs or so link lnc rnas and then link rnas yeah. like with an i in between um, the name so what is the difference between those two is there a difference or is yeah. it just like that evolved uh, that it evolved uh, during the time
2: yeah, no, that's a, a very, uh, very good insight. And um, it's really by accident. I mean, they were originally called macro RNAs and then um, long non-coding RNA kind of became a term. And we put the I in there because of that chromatin approach of saying, well, we want more than just evidence of the RNA. We want to see that it has a promoter and a gene body. And so to do that we had to focus on things that lie in between current annotations. So we called them intergenic, which is actually not true if they are a gene and Dave Bartel pointed this out and he said actually they're intervening, they're not intergenic. Still starts with an i, so we kept so we even <laughs> changed from large intergenic to large intervening. Really none of it matters anymore and I, and I think that was just because of our approach to distinguish that we are really zooming in We're not here to catalog all of them. We really want to zoom in on properties that are trackable, tractable to genetics. And so if an RNA overlapped another gene like an antisense RNA does, there's many important uh, examples of these genes. But if you go to make a knockout, it's really hard to know, are you affecting the mRNA that's overlapping and so on and so forth. Since we really knew nothing, our first approach was to tackle the ones that sat out in the middle of nowhere rather than were confounded by other, it was confusing enough, you know, and so we just wanted to get into the intergenic or intervening space. So if we did do genetics, we wouldn't have to worry about neighboring genes as much.
1: Yeah, t- talking about that. So um, you said that uh, those long coding RNAs, they have a promoter, they have like a gene body that would define like the borders of the then- to be transcribed uh, RNA. Um, so yeah. how are they located on the genome compared to normal genes? Is, are they just antis- No, on, like on the other strand of the DNA and then somehow in between those genes or can they overlap or is it everything?
2: Yeah, it's everything. Um, there's uh, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of the human genome I've learned to appreciate through, the, through time is um, bidirectional promoters. So it's two different genes going in two different directions but they share the same cis-regulatory element. Um, But what's interesting is half the time one of them is on and one of them is off, half the time they're both on. Um, And so it's not that they are the same. And so there is uh, long non-coding arteries that are actually bidirectional from each other. So there's two long non-coding arteries that go, use the same promoter, but go in different directions. There's RNAs that go head to tail. Um, And so really all of the... Same way mRNAs are um, encoded. Uh, the genomes are very complex, overlapping um, structure. Like most microRNAs come from introns of mRNAs. And, um, you know, so in mRNAs like SOX2, one of the most important in pluripotent cells, it actually comes from the intron of a long non coding RNA. So everywhere you look, there's, a, there's an example of some bizarre uh orientation of genes in the human genome and long non-coding RNAs are really no different than mRNAs other than the only physical feature we've seen that's different is that they're smaller so they tend to be about half the length of an mRNA um using this approach
1: okay so you um said that you made mouse models and tried to really um focus on how many are there? What is What are the important ones? Um, what is the biological function? So um, you also looked at the binding of RNAs to chromatin-associated aso- proteins. Um, how did yeah. you approach this and what did you find there?
2: Yeah, that was uh, a really um, exciting time. But uh, with saying, because we had found hot air in my postdoc binding to PRC2, it was quickly found that exist binds to PRC2, and when i had done those original ip experiments i knew that i got a bunch of rna back so i knew there was probably more than just hot air in there and sequencing wasn't really available um, and micro you would have to target genes you think are there um, so that wasn't really a good approach but um, we had several studies where we first did polycomb and a few others and saw that they bind to multiple rnas um, i think that became very clear with, the, um, with polycomb from many different labs, that it binds very promiscuously to all RNAs, but with an incredibly high affinity, which is an interesting biological feature where something's at an animal or binding affinity, but it doesn't care what its substrate is. Um, so I think of it as socks, walking in socks in the fall, you're gonna get leaves stuck to your socks. Um, it just doesn't really matter which leaves they are, they're gonna sort of coat the protein. Um, and uh, we, we then did a project with ENCODE, which was really a very interesting way to do science, that it was very formulaic, um, but really had high data reproducibility um, and experimental standards with it. So people could reproduce the experiments very easily. And there we took on uh, 37 different chromatin remodeling complexes and saw some bind very specific RNAs, like only their own RNA. Um, and then there was many more like polycomb that bound several RNAs. Now, why they're binding the RNAs really became the next question. <laughs> and, uh, um, and we still don't fully fully understand how that's working or, or why there's a need for RNA.
1: But can you say something about the effect of the RNA? So what is the effect of the RNA binding the, uh, the complexes? Does it enhance activity? Does it... Uh, uh diminish the binding or what is the effect of the rna yeah
2: this is a a really hot topic right now and um i think it's it's good to give a shout out to richard jenner's work where he's seen that the rna um, evicts uh, prc2 Um, and so it seems like early nascent transcriptional events tell the repressor to go away saying i'm open i'm being transcribed this is not a place you want to hang out and um, that makes a lot of sense of what the RNA could be doing. Um, and we had a, a recent study where we added RNAs to uh, a polycomb chip and found that it removes, it falls off DNA, but more compelling. Again, I, I always think genetics is like math. It's really hard to argue with. Is we made a separation of function mutant from with Tom Check's lab did that, and they showed that it PRC2 can no longer bind RNA, but it can do all its normal functions. And so they used CRISPR cell editing to make this mutant that can't find RNA, um, but can do all of its normal functioning and found that it also doesn't localize to DNA very well. Um, So I think there's a combination of, currently I would say it's, it's unclear that it's either evicting or RNA is forming some form of bridge. To chromatin because polycomb, as we know it doesn't really have a dna binding domain or same with wdr5 and g9a and so these complexes are present in every single cell in our body they have the same genome template so what changes where they go um if it's rna then um the nascent transcription model and the bridging model both make sense um and i don't know if it's one or the other because i think there's compelling evidence for both currently
1: so, is, I mean, um, PRC2 has, like, binds all around the gen- genome, basically. So, where does then the localization come from? So, um, I mean, if the RNA is expressed and then, then it – is it like a local concentration of RNA that would then, then regulate it? Because, I mean, how do you
2: yeah. – uh, Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you could think of a, a bunch of models. And I think right now we're, it's in the very nascent stages of the mechanistic action of RNA. Um for instance, I guess the one we do know is Exist scaffolds a bunch of proteins and is super stoichiometric by, I guess, causing liquid phase state. I don't know what the current best term for that is, but sort of I call it jello in the cell. But Exist can regulate, two one molecule, exists can regulate about 200 genes. This is great work from Mitch Gutman's lab recently and Catherine Plath, um, where they showed that one molecule can regulate 200 genes by forming a comp, like a condensate um, around those genes. And that's how hundred molecules can regulate thousands of genes on the X chromosome. And so polycomb could be something similar where RNA, uh, condensates conform and it's stuck in there repressing, repressing, or it could be that the RNA condensates evict polycomb from getting access to the data or to the, <laughs> to, the data, to the DNA. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I think all of those are out there. I think the work is really interesting, but to be honest, I try not to study RNA and epigenetics anymore. Um, we, we took a, after my postdoc, all the superstars were working on it. And so we didn't really want to intermingle there. And, uh, the only reason we worked on it recently was a collaboration with Tom check. That was really nice between our two labs and we share space together and it just sort of happened naturally. so I think I'm excited to see what turns out and what happens, but we're now mm-hmm. not actively pursuing it um, and leaving it up to sort of the experts to to really nail what are the the mechanisms. And I always think of what's targetable, what's druggable. Um, and so I think it'd be really interesting to know where the RNA is binding and see if we can think of drugs that could stop it from um, binding to DNA in certain diseases. But we, again, yeah. we, we're, we're staying away from polycomb. It's one of those yeah. things that came back into our lives and worked on it, but uh, try and stay away from it. There's too many superstars working on it.
1: <laughs> so you said that you made the knockout mouses and uh, the knockout mice and you um, investigated the function of ma- or some um, specific uh, long-known coding RNAs. Um so the first was a first one I picked up was uh, link RNA p21 so it yeah. interacts with the PF, p53 um yeah can you maybe um, tell us something about the function there
2: Yeah yeah so um the the field has gone through many phases and it usually is one example that opens a new dimension into long non coding RNA biology and link p21 was one of them where we found it's a early responder to p fifty three doesn't necessarily interact with p fifty three, but we thought it was interesting that our next logic after the chromatin was is if an important transcription factor turns this RNA on, that RNA is probably important, um, and so that's where link p twenty one came in, um, and a super talented uh, postdoc Maite Huarte, who now runs her own lab in Navarra, um, has worked on it since and. Um, so we we put that in our knockout catalog because it was had a lot of evidence for probably doing something. And what we were surprised to find is that all the genes nearby in cis were all changing. So it seemed to encode some enhancer for p21 of mRNA um, inside of it in vivo. But the, the mouse model was a single-dimensional study of what happens to the mouse when we knock this out. And we basically saw a cis-regulatory effect. And at the time, a lot of long non-coding RNA locus people were saying, oh, they're enhancers. They simply just encode regulatory elements for the neighboring genes. And that was true in the case of link P21. But in cancer and in uh, a lot of other diseases, um, link P21 shoots through the roof, like super abundant. So in a loss of function mouse, we're not really modeling that. Um, and I think a next step for that one would be to, to do a gain of function model. But we used our 20 mice to hone in on those that didn't have cis regulatory effects, that didn't encode small peptides. Basically, always take whatever the criticisms or new angles in the field are and test them directly. Um, and by doing 20, we got down to two or three that we were pretty convinced are RNA based um, uh, genes. So I guess we've gone. <laughs> You know, we get smaller and smaller as we go through time, but we're really our goal is to find RNA machines. Like the ribosome is the world's biggest RNA machine, makes all of the proteins, and it's an RNA, you know, enzyme. And uh, telomerase is another good example of an RNA based machine that extends our telomeres and makes sure we have healthy cells. Um, and so, our goal ultimately is to really find just one more machine um, and start to learn how. You know, the engine works and how it's all put together um, and i think we're getting really close now
1: i yeah, maybe we can uh, pick this string up uh, in just a bit because i wanted to come yeah. to because you said you you're honing down on two or three uh, loci or uh, link rnas and i guess the other one would be the fire locus. Uh, yes from,
2: that's the, my favorite
1: <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can uh, talk about this for a little bit um, how did you how did it come that you studied this link rna was it one of the um, knockout mice uh, cases or how did you um, yeah, t- uh, find this uh, link RNA and what does it do?
2: So this, the, the how we found it story is really interesting. So I'll just, I'll just tell that one is that it, we found it on accident several times. Um, at first it was Mitch Gutman uh, was analyzing a bunch of data and he found that this one locus was causing all kinds of mapping issues with sequence reads from RNA. So this was early RNA sequencing days and believe it or not, it wasn't like you just push button, run it <laughs> back then. And so the alignment algorithms, um, were having a really hard time with this locus. And so we decided to remove it from the genome. We just took it out because it was taking up too much computational time. And then we had another, uh, postdoc who's an absolute superstar now, uh, Cole Trapnall, um, who really developed all the RNA seq algorithms with Lear Pachter and Steven Salzberg. Um, they, uh, Cole found it as well. He, he said, what is going on with this locus? There's all these repeats and the aligners are really struggling to get stuff in here. And I was like, we should, it's on, I was like, where is it? And he's like, it's on the X chromosome. So I immediately thought, well, exists has repeat elements. It's on the X. This one has repeat elements and it's causing us all these problems and it's on the X. Maybe it's like exist, you know, let follow the guilt by association that you know a, a repetitive RNA on the x chromosome could be really interesting and it turns out all along um so we started studying it I I said to a student hey if you want to take a risk we this is not our typical gene that came out of our pipelines because we'd ignored it um and the student took it on and and just absolutely nailed it with two two papers um but in the first paper we had a made, we've made so many mistakes but one one uh, interesting one was um we named it fire and it had already been discovered by christine de lab lab and brian chadwick and so they had been calling it loc something you know this is another one of these issues with link rna nomenclature um what was interesting is cole ended up going to university of washington where christine de uh is and they he had his interview and he said well why did you name it fire you know we had named it this and Cole was just like oh my gosh we had no idea we didn't see it in the catalogs and we're so sorry and the next paper you'll see the first paper we we didn't know there was another group working on this because it was from the X inactivation sort of field and um, it just felt horrible and so we both we both were like oh it's fine and we just all cited each other Um, we each had another paper come out a couple years after Um, and then have since collaborated together we sent them cell lines from our knockout mice and our transgene mice. And they just recently published that. So it was one of those bloopers that ended up being a good thing in the long run. Um, And it's happened to other linked RNAs, like the long non-cording RNA tuna has been named several times by several different people. And so we almost need an annotation police to (laughs) track of the names. Yeah. So that's how it started. It It was a computational accident and just started to smell funny and, put a student on it and she, she we owe it all to her for really uh digging into it and its evolution isn't really interesting and then uh, we then made the mouse after the that was the next mouse we made after the 20. um
1: so you you said that there are repeat elements in there um and you worked on characterizing those um what did you find out about those uh, repeat elements
2: yeah, it's uh, super interesting. It was great that the computer struggled with this because so did we. Um, that they repeat within the region, so the every animal has a fire locus. So a bunny rabbit, a cow, a donkey, everybody's got a fire. The primary sequence of fire is only like thirty or forty percent homologous between species. And this is very similar to telomerase, where the telomerase RNA changes widely in its size and sequence across evolution. So you think such an important RNA would be highly conserved and have found its perfect, you know, thing. And it did have found a structure that's really important, but its sequence is not conserved. It's it's hard to find telomerase in, in another genome because it doesn't always look the same. Um, but Uh, fire was similar and that every we could find the locus in every species because they all have these repeat regions that occurred within the locus but nowhere else in the genome so it turns out this is called local repeats um so they're not like transposable repeats or other types um and so they occur only in this locus they occur in the locus of every species but they're all different sequences so it's a uh, evolutionary we uh it's called ectopic evolution i didn't know this until we started to find it but um ectopic evolution where in primates fire is 100 conserved so you can find the sequences is identical within primates but before primates it's in every animal but it's very different in sequence um so it's a very bizarre evolutionary aspect and the thing i like about the repeats is it can cause uh, allow for stu- super stoichiometric functions So imagine protein X binds to this repeat and there's 15 of the repeats. You can imagine fire is like a tugboat of that protein, um, bringing it somewhere or or using those proteins to do something. Um, But very few genes in the the genome have local repeats. Um, And so that was another striking um, part of it. And I think one of the coolest things about it is that it's the only long non-coding RNA known to escape X inactivation. And so far i think four different labs have found this um and why so why would there be one biallelic long non-coding rna it's uh it's another it's got all kinds of interesting properties and luckily it had a phenotype in the end
1: and what what was the phenotype
2: um so the phenotypes when you do mouse work there's it's hard to know where to look and it's really the interest of the postdoc and the postdoc i was working with uh was really interested in immunology And actually Richard Favell made the knockout mouse because of its properties in the immune system. And um, so he was intrigued enough by the immune system. It was very specific to a certain type of T cell. And so Jordan in the knockout mouse focused mostly on immunology. And the most dramatic phenotype is that gain of fire. So if you overexpress fire and you expose them to a whiff of LPS, which is like a bacterial infection, they die within hours. Um, All the mice die. So it means if you have too much fire, you're going to have the inability to respond to a bacterial infection and die of a fever. Essentially, they they get really warm, and they have a cytokine storm that um, won't turn off um, with too much fire. And then in the absence of fire, you lose a whole branch of your immune cells. Your hematopoietic stem cells are highly reduced Um, And that turns into a reduction of the common lymphoid progenitor is almost all gone. Um, And that was the knockout mouse. And this is where we first started to Fourier into the importance of multiple genetic models to get at something. And so we made a transgene rescue so we could say, well, if you knock out fire, you lose all your common lymphoid progenitors. Do you add fire back in? Do they restore? And the answer to that was yes. And what was even cooler, in my opinion, was that if you do RNA-seq on the knockout versus the rescue genes, in the knockout, the genes that went down went back up in the rescue, and the genes that went up in the knockout went back down in the rescue. So fire was basically able to bring the cell back to homeostasis, um, and they were able to proliferate again. And we saw a T-cell defect as well. Um, But we also saw some brain defects, and we just have not had the bandwidth. Um, and we don't really work on mouse models anymore since, uh, moving to Boulder. Um, and so if somebody does want to make a work on, we have the mice in Jack's, you can get them for free or however much it costs to send them to you, but look in the brain there, there's something going on there and we just never had time to wrap it up.
1: Yeah, maybe some someone is hearing that <laughs> to do that. Yeah, I hope so.
2: It's <laughs> it's worth it. I can tell you there's something going on and I'm happy to give you any data we have if you are interested in that. <laughs> uh,
1: one little thing or one last thing about the locus is that it yeah. also contains CTCF binding sites. Um, yes. So what does that mean?
2: yeah that's a great observation and it's really striking if you look in human and mouse the fire locus has the most ctcf per base uh it's in the top three at least in every cell type we've looked at in both human and mouse so it is caked in ctcf this was actually um something first brought forward by christine destesha's lab that it's only on one allele that the ctcf is on um on the active x and so the inactive x sorry um and, uh, what, so we, I had a student come from, Job Decker's lab and UMass, who was a high C expert. And he's like, Hey, look, fire has all the, the CTCF. Let's make, you have a knockout. Let's do high C on this. And I was terrified of high C, um, at the time, but he was a pro. So I was like, go for it. And, um, he did the knockout and every which way to Sunday, each allele, basically nothing changed. Um, Another interesting thing is Fire sits in a tad boundary with fifteen at least fifteen sites of CTCF. And so we thought if we delete that, the tad boundary would open up or change. and it is perfectly the same. So the only thing we can think of, um the cool thing too, is that he did high C. I think we did like thirty or forty different high C experiments they're all negative. And so he decided this was not the way he wanted his career to go anymore. And so he joined Ben Blankow's lab um, and worked on um, chromatin and splicing and just had a great molecular cell paper. But I I brag about him because he had uh, four primary papers, all with negative data, which I think really shows that if you ask a question that's interesting enough, it doesn't matter if the answer is no, you can still publish it and that was the ctcf thing of whoa look at the surprise that he had sort of dug up that there's so much ctcf here you knock it out and nothing changes um you know we were able to publish that because he did it so thoroughly and we would have assumed that, that ctcf removing that much ctcf would do something to that tad boundary and we saw nothing
1: change so now I want to pick up, uh, ba- to pick back up the string that we dropped on the RNA machines, because I think that leads yeah. to my next questions, uh, or my next question: What are you working on right now, and what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? Because I think that's what what you are going for.
2: Yeah, yeah. I guess in this business, five years is how long a grant lasts, and that's kind of <laughs> your your outer career limit. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm up against that right now, but um, so I'm really excited about what we're working on actually, and it's it's kind of different again. Um, obviously, we love fire, um, and essentially, that we're working on fire. Um, but now we want to know how is it working as an RNA machine? So we know it has these cool evolutionary properties. It escapes X activation. It's actually Mendelianly inherited in some human brain diseases. Um, I've gotten emails from real doctors saying, "Hey, look, there's a mutation in fire in this brain disease," and I think that's just really uh, exciting. And it's Mendelianly inherited. So essentially it's a, a causal um, uh, element in the genome. And so we're working on the mechanism, but we're taking a totally different approach. And my main reason for coming to Boulder was to get advice from the RNA pros, the people who had worked on these machines in the past and um, use old school biochemistry with a genomic flare um, is kind of what I always uh, tell people. And um, so what we're doing with Fire is we want to know the mechanism and a lot of people in the field are going by mechanism by doing chirp chart wrap whatever you want to call it ms where you pull on the rna and see what proteins bind to it but the problem there is you have unbound fire or fire that's getting formed into a machine and bound fire that's already in a machine and you're mixing those two signals So we think that's one issue the other issue is what are the target genes what when you turn on fire what does it regulate? Where does it go in the genome and what genes does it turn on or off? And so we used, um, I think it's over 100 RNA-seq experiments, but we did a temporal aspect where we turned fire on in stem cells and we watched what other genes turn on and turn off. And doxycycline turns out to be a pretty nasty molecule when you induce a gene with doxycycline. Um, Lots of genes change, so we have a control for that as well. Um, I I guess I'm too excited about this. I'm rambling in the Mm -hmm. details, but um, basically we want to know the targets of fire to figure out its mechanism. And that's not a common way of approaching it, but it is the way they approach transcription factors. So I always like to look back in history and say, well, who found the first transcription factor and then what did they do? Um, Or who found the first long non-coding iron? I think it was Shirley Tillman in 1989. What did they do? And um, what they did is they found what, where the targets were for a transcription factor to figure out what it was regulating and so uh if you do a wild type and a knockout you find 500 genes that change that, you know where do you start um it's too too many and then we did a rescue experiment which we thought would be the perfect way to do it say well if you go back to normal and when you reintroduce fire then you're probably a real target that's 440 genes so that didn't work so we're like And then this really brilliant um, he's a graduate student and he's a physics uh, major from undergrad he said well time really is the key way to find a target because if it goes up in time or follows the trajectory of fire in time then we have many more data points of of interrelated data that say this is probably a real target so we did this in uh, four different genotypes and we we sampled every 30 minutes. I won't go into why we had to do that, but it was really cool. And we combined Chipseq, ATAC seq, RNA-seq. And what we found was that target fire regulates about uh, 20 genes. Um, once we compare all these different genotypes and say, what are the genes that always follow fire in time and are not due to doxycycline is another um, important consideration. And turns out it's about 20 genes. Uh, one of them. Is related to the Mendelian disease that fire is inherited in. It's actually the known gene for that disease. Um, and so it was really nice to get into that, but we wanted to know how it was working. So we did knock downs of polycomb, WDR5, and G9A, all the epigenetic major players. And all these genes still were re induced by fire in about 90 minutes. So we turn on fire, and despite lack of K27 or polycomb, still turns on same with g9a and wdr5 and so we did attack seek and we used, uh, i believe the, the active motif uh, kit for that or one of your kits for some of these but um the uh attack seek was super revealing um that in 30 minutes all 20 of these genes had a new attack peak show up so not only did all the genes turn on and go up over time but the chromatin always opened up at their locus. Um, and so they were previously off and turned on and they opened up and that might seem obvious, but because we did such a high resolution time course, we can actually put almost a kinetic model together where we know that chromatin accessibility changes within 30 minutes. So it's before it's, it's all done by 30 minutes and gene expression takes about an hour and a half. So it was really cool is to see the TAC peaks show up at all 20 of these genes, nowhere else really in the genome. So we did a ton of attack seek to get 20 peaks changing, <laughs> <laughs> but it was worth it in the end. Um, but, and they were the same as the 20 genes that were being turned on through time. And so we saw that it was 30 minutes to, turn, to open a locus and about an hour to activate expression of that gene um, to be detectable. Um, so that, that's what I'm really excited about is the temporal dynamics of a link RNA. And now that we have these target genes, we're making reporter lines where with GFP and other colored um, markers, and now we can do screens on proteins to say, well, what genes does it require to turn on this gene? And so our approach is kind of backwards, but it's also classically done in history, find the targets and then use the targets as an assay of what's the mechanism. So, if this protein that's bound to fire is really important, we should be able to remove that protein and that part of the RNA and figure out how the machine is built to open up chromatin. Another final thing about that is that uh, the chromatin accessibility is always at enhancers upstream of these genes. So, fire is not directly regulating a promoter or anything like that, it's essentially opening up cis regulatory elements. Um, so we're going to use that as an assay of like, how does it get there? How does it know to get there? Um, what are the proteins that bring it there? And that's what we're sort of working on on right now. And there's one other little thing we're working on right now. That I just want to say because it's really preliminary, but we're trying to find the biggest long non-coding RNA. So um, we're using old school sucrose gradients and we're running the gradients and then isolating RNA from every fraction doing RNA seek so it's almost like time but size Um, and we can see in almost all cases there's free RNA the RNA that's not complex and then there's the fully complexed RNA so we know fire is where its sediments is pretty high compared to its free unbound RNA and so we're dialysizing out these uh, fractions too to find the proteins that are bound in the fully assembled complex so really like this old school technique of sucrose gradients and size and that if a link rna is making a big complex it's probably important that's kind of our logic right now
1: yeah that's <laughs> <clears throat> <coughs> sorry sounds uh, sounds uh, yeah sounds interesting and hopefully we can uh, read more about that uh, in the near future then yeah uh- Um, To finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, The first one, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end or did you know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer?
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Many times I'm trying to think of, I think the mouse was a dead end for us where we really didn't know in the field what was going to be compelling evidence. We were sort of hitting this dead end of marginal gains and we've never worked on mice before and so we hit a dead end of like okay we can do this in a cell and then everybody's gonna say well it's just a cell who cares doesn't mean it does anything it's not important and we hit the dead end we were running out of funding and so we just decided with the dead end to go all in and say okay this is our final push Let's see, if none of these mice have uh, a phenotype, let's just all be co-authors on a paper and move on <laughs> to a different topic. Um, but I think the biggest dead end I hit was um, the deciding to move to Boulder when you kind of know um, it's easy to be comfortable in a place. And I loved being in Boston and I had a great lab and um, everything was going really well. But somehow I knew this wasn't forever. Um, And it was dead ending um, for me that I was not thinking um, as much as I used to. And it became a lot of travel and a big lab. I think we're up to 24 people at some point. And I read Jacob's book where he did his own experiments in an upstairs room in france and had to wait for people to finish their lunch and each experiment really mattered to him um and so i saw a dead end with the big lab uh which i know a lot of people do very successfully i just knew for myself i couldn't do the big lab thing anymore and i really wanted to work with just a small group of people and be way more involved in the day-to-day science and that's where um, boulder came up and i didn't apply to any other schools i just knew boulder was the way out of that dead end um and the biggest dead end i hit though was not in science it was it it would be more personal stuff uh both recent and before science was um i hit a dead end with uh sports so i was running i was a runner in college and and um Realized and skateboarding was another uh, big hobby of mine. I just realized like I can't keep doing these things forever. Um, And what do I do with my life? Like I can't keep literally running away from reality. Um, And uh, that took a summer. I had an an ACL injury and just spent the whole summer reading and thinking, what do I want to do with my life? I remember that being like the scariest time of my life where you just didn't know what i wanted to do and that kept coming up i think that's normal to have that happen a lot so i don't know if that's what you mean by a dead end but i would say the biggest dead ends i've had is um have been more philosophical of what what do we do now or how do we improve from this situation um and those are have been the biggest sort of struggles i think uh
1: The question was intended scientifically, but it's also um, great to that you share uh, some other uh, insights because I think many people also might have those, and not only struggle scientifically. So um, it's it's good to hear that. Yeah,
2: COVID has made it even worse. With currently being like, what you know, I think a lot of people have revisited. What are we doing? What's important? And uh, that's that's hard to get into that space and
1: yeah, um, definitely
2: keep moving forward. But.
1: So in the last 45 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career and your life. Uh, Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview?
2: Um, My most important favorite paper ever. Okay, I I love them all. Everything (laughs) has been amazing. But one of the coolest experiences I had was working with this postdoc, David Kelly, who uh, really is one of the pioneers of machine learning, of biology data, real machine learning, not just regressions. Um, So deep learning, I guess. Um, He was a mathematician and I had no idea. I just knew he was smart. And um, I like working with smarter people than me. And it's always worked out. But what do you do with a mathematician biology lab? And I said, well, take a look at the transposable elements in the human genome and see if any of them have a bias to being a long non-coding RNA because a protein can't tolerate to be invaded by a transposon, but long non-coding RNAs can. And he came back like within a month. I think this paper started, it was start to finish was one year. I've never seen something so fast. And it was a very simple paper with a, the, probably the most real finding we've ever had, where um, this HERVH is a human-specific transposon had landed in the promoter of 147 long non-coding RNAs. But what was really striking is it was always in the same direction as the TSS, so it could have gone in either way, um, but it always went in in the same direction, and they were only expressed in stem cells where most transposons are DNA methylated and shut off. Um, and so he went on to characterize this more. But what transpired? So we published that in 2011, and then I think there were roughly a hundred papers by 2013 um, on this element, and we got we got an email from one person, Cedric Fischote, um, at Cornell now. Somebody uh, would definitely want to get on this podcast. He's a very interesting person. And um, he wrote to us and said, who are you? And congratulations, nice finding. Um, We found the same thing for enhancers in stem cells. And that started uh, a friendship. And it was the only two-author paper I've ever had in the lab. So it was just me and that postdoc. And we didn't know what we had found and we just published it and it just turned into this whole thing. We missed out. We should have kept pursuing it. It was just such a cool scientific experience to say, Hey, look, look at this question. And one thing came out that was really interesting. And it was found by other labs. And now we just this week published another paper with Cedric on on Herb H and its evolution. And so I, yeah, I would say that was the one, nobody knows nobody's read that paper but check out rin and kelly 2011 genome biology (laughs) (laughs) i think i think one of these things of how again how you ask the question matters more than what you find um and we asked a good question of how do transposons bias themselves according to link rnas and um had what i think is a a seminal paper from our lab
1: yeah we'll make sure to put the, the reference in the show notes so that people can find it Thank you, John, for your time and for being on the show.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode
0: of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.